0: outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present their roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I am your host, Jeremy Corr. Today, we will be talking to one of the top scientists in the world, Baroness Susan Greenfield. She is here today to talk about her book, You and Me, The Neuroscience of Identity. Susan, welcome to the show.
1: It's a pleasure to be on, Jeremy.
0: Susan, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Okay, so I'm a neuroscientist primarily. Um, I've been based in Oxford pretty much all my career, although I did actually have what's called a postdoc period. That's to say after my PhD, I did some research at NYU Medical Center, so I've lived in New York for a while. Um, I also spent a year at the Collège de France in Paris, so I feel that I've had the best cities in the world, New York and Paris, to be uh, to be a scientist in. Uh, subsequent to that, I've worked in Australia, as a so-called thinker in residence in Adelaide and as as a visiting professor at Melbourne University. And I've also worked in South Africa briefly for about two months, which is where I wrote this book. So um, although I've been lucky enough to be in all these different places, primarily I've been in Oxford. I was an undergraduate here. I did my DPhil here. And then um, I've had a a series of um, faculty positions here in Oxford. But now um, I've actually... Um, gone to the dark side and now started a company called NeuroBio, N-E-U-R-O hyphen B-I-O, uh, which I founded in 2013 based on my work. And what we're doing is developing a completely new approach to Alzheimer's disease.
0: What inspired you to specifically write this book?
1: Um, well, my origins are actually not those of a typical scientist. And that when I was at school, I hated science. And um, I was much more actually specialized and did my entrance for Oxford. In those days, you had to do special exams for Oxford Um, on Latin and Greek and ancient history. And I also did maths. So they were my specialist subjects, what I call classics and maths. And I think doing the ancient world literature and history as I did, inevitably that prompts you to ask the very big questions of life, like what makes a person the person they are? What do we mean by a mind? And I've always been interested in how we see ourselves. I mean, increasingly in the world... Um, we are concerned with our identity. Look, for example, at the development of tattoos and how, although tattoos as a technology, if you can call it that, have been around for a long time, now they're pretty mainstream. And I just wonder whether that's people struggling to express their identity in some way, in a way that wasn't in the past. Um, I think it's the most important aspect. It's what actually people are aware of when you meet people. You want them to know very quickly who you are, what you're about, what you do. You want to find out about them. So identity is something that I think is a rather fragile phenomenon, It's something that's very important to us. And at the same time, it hasn't actually been identified. In the book, what I do is take different approaches, looking at it, the social perspective, the psychiatric perspective, neuroscience perspective, um, and uh, the individual perspective, and then put it into a time and a place. So it, for me, it's a rather sort of general, vague term that nonetheless is a very important one, and I thought was tractable, not just to neuroscience, but also um, played to my old love of philosophy. So
0: you briefly touched on it, but when when most people think about the word of identity, they, they think of ID cards, signatures, fingerprints, things like that. Can you please elaborate on this a bit?
1: Well, in one sense, that is your identity, but... Um, if I said to me, Jeremy, this is you, it's all summed up in this fingerprint,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I don't think you'd really be that pleased, or indeed <laughs> in your ear. You know, ears come out. So although these are marks of our individuality, I think we have to distinguish between individuality and identity. These are biological markers. Your voice is a marker of your um, individuality. Um, and from Parkinson's disease, one of the fascinating things I first learned when I was studying it is that signatures, for example, even though... With that disease, you develop something called micrographia, which is to say that your writing, like everything you do, becomes very miniaturized and small. The signature remains, so you can actually blow up um, a a signature of a Parkinson patient and find it's the same as when before they were ill. So there's something there that's that's speaking to um, a very central pattern of what you are. So those things um, are, of course, useful markers of your individual identity, of your individuality sorry but they're not your identity as such you know uh, uh, we struggle to think well there's more to me than my voice or my fingers or my ear or indeed my signature you know I'm about more than that and what one has to explore is why are we not satisfied with that being a definition of identity Um, you know and why why would we want to have something else and what could that something else be.
0: Can you please go into depth a little bit for our listeners about what is the difference between the metaphorical collective identity and some kind of unique special self?
1: Well, again, I think that that is a very interesting um, ambiguity that we often talk about national identity, a collective identity. Increasingly so at the moment. People are very sensitive to their national identity. Um, you in the U.S., just as sensitive as we are with our Brexit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> these are these are topics that, um, well, I hope we're not going to get into politics, but um, are very sensitive to people. People feel they like to feel they belong. And in a sense, that collective group has things in common, or we would argue that they have traits in common, that are single and that unifies them. You know, you might have, I don't know, a certain language. Let's take something very innocent like language or a culture. Uh, So that is a way of uh, being part of a group, which in one sense is an identity. I mean, or you could go out, I don't know, on a hen night or a bachelor night or be part of a football team. And again, there you are having an identity that is a collective identity Um, And I think that what we have to think about and what I develop in the book is this notion of different stages, where um, you put yourself into a context. And there you are, you're a member of a team, you're a member of a family, you're a member of a workforce. And all those things are aspects of your identity. That's not saying they're the only identity you have.
0: In your book, you say that a good way to explore the neurobiology of identity is to explore the mental conditions where identity is arguably impaired in some fashion. Can you please explain this for our listeners and uh, give some examples that discuss some of the insight into them?
1: Things like in manic depression, for example, um, where people arguably have very different um, ways of seeing the world or that you could say they have a different identity almost like a jackal and hide. Um, what I do is explain how um, the biochemistry might work to enable that to um, to come about in terms of um, how the drug lithium, for example, which is the one that's used, um, how, that, um, how that works in terms of um, changing the status of the way brain cells are organized by changing their excitability levels. Uh, I won't go into great detail, but um, I hope that's one one way we can see how our identity, for example, in bipolar, how that can be brought about by the biochemistry of the brain. Um, Another one um, is with schizophrenia, um, which is not simply, it's not split personality, as people like to say, but actually it's a very complex um, condition. Um, And what I'd like to do there is to talk about how in schizophrenia, I think in many ways, um, it's a regression to being more like a child where your identity is very vulnerable, uh, where you're very open to um, the slings and arrows of the outside world, and you're very distracted. Often people feel they've been invaded by the outside world, so they don't have a robust sense of identity. Rather like small children, they're very easily influenced, very easily distracted, very much at the mercy of the environment. So there are two examples, say, of it. Um,
0: What makes the human brain so special compared to the rest of the animal kingdom?
1: Um, That's, of course, a very deep question, (laughs) um, (laughs) what makes us human. Um, Okay, I can answer about the brain, and then I think about the mind, and the two are connected. So um, what's special about us, but not unique about us, is we are very good at adapting. Now, a lot of animals do that to greater or lesser extents, but we do it superlatively, which is why we occupy more ecological niches. Than any other species on the planet this is something called plasticity it's not that the human brain is plastic it comes from the greek plasticos to be molded um so if you compare yourself with a goldfish, for example goldfish don't have great personalities um i hope to sorry to slag off the goldfish but <laughs> we, we you know so if you had a goldfish and it died you could buy another one and your kids wouldn't earn any difference when they came home whereas i like to say you couldn't do with you couldn't do that with pet cats and dogs and You certainly couldn't do it with their brothers or sisters if they wanted you to. So anyway, um, the whole issue is that as we become more sophisticated, so our um, scope and potential for plasticity and adaption changes. And my notion is that the more individual experiences they have, the more you become an individual. Now, this is because what happens is experiences literally leave their mark on your brain. So um, there's lots of studies on humans where you can look and see either with experts on how their brains are different because they're doing something um, in a very focused way, very concentrated way. And you can see the brains are different from ordinary human beings. Or you can get ordinary people and get them to do certain skills and over five or six days see changes in their brain. So we know that this is a very robust phenomena. Um, And the basis of it is that the more you make a brain cell work hard, um, the more it grows branches. And the more it grows branches, the more you increase the surface area of it so the more it can make connections. And here's the difference. Um, we can make connections. We can see one thing in terms of something else. And that capacity increases as we grow. So you're, you grow where you take the word very literally. Let's say, take something like a wedding ring. It's a gold shiny thing. And you just see it as a gold shiny thing. It doesn't mean anything. But as you associate it with a load of different experiences, you'll learn it's something that goes on a finger. It only goes on a certain finger under certain circumstances, and so on. So you know that if you see someone, one of them, it means something. It says something about the person that's not apparent from the sensory properties. So therefore, and I will answer your question about why we're special in a moment, um, what I think characterizes lots of animals, but us in particular, is that we can um, have um, specialized idiosyncratic associations that are triggered in turn by our unique experiences. Now, what in humans I think we can do more than any other species is we can think metaphorically. We can see one thing in terms of something else. Even a small child can't do this. So, um, or a schizophrenic. If you say to a schizophrenic, what does it mean? People who live in glass houses mustn't throw stones. They'll say, oh, if your house is made of glass and I throw a stone, your house will break. Or my little brother, much younger than me, um, I used to torture him by forcing him to learn Shakespeare. And there's a famous... Line in Macbeth, which is, Out, out, brief candle, life is but a poor player. And had you said to him, Well, what does that mean? He'd have said, Well, I have a candle on my birthday cake and I blow it out. (laughs) He wouldn't have seen it as a metaphor for death. Now, that ability only comes with the very sophisticated connections that you can make. And so, even a small child, let alone an animal, can't do that. And what makes us special is we see one thing in terms of something else. We can see it as metaphors. And I think that that. Is crucial, and if I think this might sound far-fetched, but I think what makes us particularly human is if you look at the seven deadly sins. These are examples of normal biological behaviours that all animals have, but they are taken out of context to mean something else. Yeah, so they're exaggerated to be something else. Um, so um, I'm trying to think of examples. So, for example, greed, um, which animals don't have, you know, avarice. That's because you can accumulate things that will enhance your status. Um, vanity um, is you're aware of your physical appearance that will enhance your status. Yeah? Um, anger. Animals don't get angry. They're violent and aggressive. But they don't get angry. Anger is in something where you think your status hasn't been acknowledged appropriately. Yeah? So um, what I think makes us human, what makes us special, is that um, we can escape the press of the moment and we don't take the word literally. We live in a world of metaphor and symbols. Yeah. And I think that's what makes and that is in turn due to the fact that we have the ability to make very complex connections in our brain that other animals, even young children, don't.
0: Will you please elaborate a bit on the concepts of mind and consciousness and how they relate to the physical brain?
1: Sure. Um, well, there are three different words. And so therefore, when people in a rather lazy way, so they are just the same. Obviously, they're not. Otherwise, we wouldn't have three separate words for them. So I think we all know what the brain is, the physical brain. It's what you can see and touch and feel. And I remember once contemplating it when I was doing a dissection, thinking what would be if I got a bit under my fingernail? And would that be the memory of someone under my fingernail? Um, so we're, we're all comfortable with what the physical brain is. Now the mind, which sometimes philosophers in a rather sniffy way tend to think of as separate from the squalor of the physical brain, um, that for me is the personalization of the brain, through the very plasticity we've just been talking about. So it's what makes your brain different from mine, Jeremy, is that you will have neuronal connections I don't have. They'll be forming patterns and connectivities that mine do not, and vice versa. And so this personalization of the brain, which enables you to have associations based on your individual experiences, uh, be what I call the mind. And we talk about being having an open mind, a broad mind, a narrow mind, and so on. And when we talk about the mind, it's usually emphasizing the personal view of the world. So the mind, I would say, is the personalization of the brain. Consciousness is, again, separate because you can lose your mind and blow your mind and you're still conscious. Similarly, when you go to sleep and lose your consciousness, you don't say you're losing your mind. And what I do in the book is show a little scheme of how The brain, the mind, and consciousness are interconnected, but nonetheless discrete entities. And consciousness, um, and I've written a more recent book on that now, um, I suggest physically um, is due to the very transient, very large-scale grouping of brain cells for less than a second. They band and disband. Or another analogy is more like a ripples in a puddle. But I'm sure we may come to that later. But it's just to say that I think that you can differentiate the three operationally. And I think you can differentiate the three physically in that the mind, I'll just repeat, is the specialized or unique personalization of the physical brain. And that would be local connections that are quasi-permanent, they're slow to form, and they're long-lasting, and they are essentially local, small circuits, whereas consciousness entails much larger scale, much more transient, corralling up, if you like, of um, of, of, um, activity across large scales of brain cells. So I'm comfortable, although not to definitively so, with differentiating the three like that. And I say in my little scheme, which if they buy the book, people will see, um, I think one can separate them out and, and be quite comfortable interchanging them and differentiating them. So talking about being conscious but having blown your mind, and at the same time having your mind when you're asleep and not being conscious, I think we can do that.
0: Where and how does the the, the concept of individual identity fit into the mix?
1: Well, again, um, I'd like to use what I call the desert island test. So if you're on a desert island, at least initially you wouldn't have lost your mind and you would be conscious. But would you have an identity? Would you have an identity on a desert island? What would you be? My suggestion is that now we've, we've put the mind in place and we've got consciousness, but now you need a context because otherwise who or what are you if you're not? Yeah? And this comes back to the initial thoughts we had when we were talking about being a member of a football team or a choir or a member of a country. You need other people in order to have an identity. Yeah? Um, and so um, what I've suggested is that obviously the first prerequisite is that you need to have the mind. You, you know, A small baby, I don't think, has a sense of identity. Uh, so you need all those uh, connections. You certainly need to be conscious. You don't have much of an identity when you're asleep. Um, but then you need to go one further and you need to be in an environment where you are, are, where you have an, you have a, an effect, you have an action that has a response, and then that is incorporated into your greater memory banks or your greater networks. So it's a kind of step process where um, you build on those things. But for me, identity is, if you like, the crown of creation. It goes beyond a mind and beyond consciousness to place you in the context of other people and society and real things. So, as I say, I like the desert island test where I would challenge anyone to say what the... Well, you could say your identity is that of a sort of (laughs) shipwrecked individual, but but I think on the whole, that's not a very strong identity, you know? So you, you need to be in a context. And as we grow through life, we start off having one identity being the child, the baby of the family, but then you'll become, you know, the schoolmate, you'll then become the boyfriend or the girlfriend, you'll then become, you know, the the football player, you'll become the singer in the choir, then you'll become, you know, more transiently, as I say, on a bachelor night out or a hen night out, and then you'll become the mother or the sister, you know. So gradually, your roles become more rich, and that's what makes you. That's that, it's, it's that ever-complex, ongoing, increasing number of contexts in which you uh, express and interact, that somehow is bound together to give a unified sense of who you are.
0: Will you please talk a bit about beliefs, such as political views, their spectrum Mm -hmm. from rational to irrational, and their formation for our listeners?
1: Sure, yes, I mentioned that in the book, um, because of course that's a very topical and important issue at the moment. Um, So let's think of a a belief um, I believe the sun will rise tomorrow. You know, that's an inductive belief, and you know, it's founded on um, experience. That uh, every day I've been alive, the sun has risen tomorrow. So, and that's different from, let's say, let me take to be just provocative, a se- <laughs> belief like um, all women are stupid. Nice sexist belief. Let's take something like that, which I think uh, many of us would certainly challenge. Yeah, um, and I think this fits along a spectrum of um, rational beliefs versus ones that are. Founded on experience and how resistant you are to the proof to the opposite, so whilst um, the sun will rise tomorrow um, there's, there's no there 's never been the case where the sun hasn 't risen tomorrow, so that I think you know people would start to buy into that belief on the other hand, um, the notion that all women are stupid or all men are better um, there could be many count, many examples to counteract that, and what one has to deal with is the resistance to that founded on experience. And of course, and I don't want to get too much into delicate territory here, but issues of fundamentalism, where if you've had um, an early part of your life, um, having one set of rules or ideas which have formed very strong connections in your brain, and the Jesuits, for example, used to say, give me a child until he is seven, and I will give you the man. Yeah. Um, the more you have um, a single... Uncontested set of associations um, exposed to you or accessing your, your connections, the more robust they will be and the harder and more resilient they will be to um, arguments to the contrary or proof to the contrary. So I think one can see a sort of sliding scale of um, where you are putting, your, you put on the one hand how strong your experiences have been and how varied, and then the strength of the new thing that comes in. And therefore, your sales resistance to it.
0: You know, you talked about just now exposing yourselves to diverse beliefs is is good. It it strengthens you and everything like that. Yeah. What about what's going on now in society where everybody's so easily offended and they only want to see their viewpoint and that's it?
1: Oh, I'll happily talk about that. Yeah. So um, I think this then does raise the specter that we're faced with today of what they call the echo chamber. And contrary to what one would like to hope, which is that as communications becoming much more pervasive and easy and widespread and accessible, how come now people seem uh, much touchier and much more sensitive to um, other people's views and much more easily offended? Um, and I think that's because, sadly, the way it's organized is in what's been referred to as an echo chamber, where now with so many different types of medium, people will tend to uh, use um spheres where they they know people will agree with them or where their own thoughts are echoed and endorsed rather than being exposed to completely new ones or different ones. In the old days, there was only, well certainly in the UK, there's only two channels on the TV Mm -hmm. and there was only print newspapers and that was it and there was the radio. So everyone was exposed to the same kind of uh, media, whereas now you can, on social media and on on the internet, you can actually access where you feel most comfortable and where you feel people agree with you. And that actually can be very polarizing, I think.
0: Well, one of the things I, I find fascinating about this is when I went to college, I was so excited. I grew up in a, a small middle of nowhere town. I was so excited mm-hmm. to go and learn all these different viewpoints and have my, my viewpoints and beliefs challenged. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Internet was looked at as something, hey, I can learn yeah. so much about other people's viewpoints. But it, it seems like the complete opposite is the case now.
1: Indeed. And I I think also um, people are now used to um, being passive and consumers rather than being challenging and proactive. And as someone once said, it is better to ask some of the questions than know all of the answers. And I think we're now living in an answer-rich question-poor world as opposed to where, uh, I won't be rude enough to ask how old you are, but I'm I'm sure we grew up in a similar environment of being in a question-rich answer-poor world where you had to work very hard to get your answers. You had to go to the library, you had to delve and ask questions and borrow and research it wasn't just blitzing you as information is nowadays you know and i think that meant that we had to weigh things up and discriminate and do the checks and balances and that is the or has been the birthright of the adult human mind that you can actually put things into a context and in turn that speaks to the distinction that many have said between um so-called fluid intelligence and crystalline intelligence Fluid intelligence is an agility of mind, seen in small children, say, or indeed in artificial intelligence, where you get the correct answer quickly to an input, but you don't necessarily understand it. And the notion of crystalline intelligence is you put it into a framework, a conceptual framework, where you relate it to other things, so therefore you have a deep understanding, which we would call knowledge as opposed to information. And I fear now that if things go the way they are, we are going to look at a generation who have lots of information, can handle information, they can respond to information, but they don't understand any of it. They have very poor knowledge. And I think that we have to bear in mind that distinction when we look at the glamour of um, the internet and search engines. Bear in mind that if there are people who can't put it into a context, who don't know how to join up the dots, then really they might be missing out on true understanding.
0: Yeah, the the long-term ramifications of of what's going on is scary and and interesting at the same time.
1: Yeah, I mean, what was interesting was um, I wrote a book five years ago called Mind Change. And at the time, although a lot of people agreed with me, I got my fair share of cynics and criticism. And I feel vindicated now because that was five years ago. And now it, it is raging. Everyone is concerned and aware and worried about this uncontrolled experiment we're doing with the next generation.
0: I mean, to that point, even you go to a restaurant, a nice restaurant, where even 10 years ago, you know, people would find it rude to be on their phones. Indeed. And now every, every everybody under the age of, I don't know, 40 is sitting there on their phones ignoring the people they're with. It's crazy. Exactly.
1: No, exactly. And so when people say, where's the evidence? I say, well, just look around you. You'll see it. <laughs> right. right. And, and for example, you may have had World Health Organization only this week, have classified gaming disorder as a a genuine psychiatric problem, an addiction to gaming, such that the way you define the disorder in the UK is can you get treatment on the national health, and you now can for gaming disorder.
0: So how would you compare gaming to social media? I see a lot more people addicted to being on Facebook and and all those other apps out there. Well, in a
1: sense, they're the same in one way, in that what they're manipulating very fiendishly, and again, I don't think people realize this, is that these, these programs and these products are made by very clever people who, of course, want you to be doing it all the time mm-hmm. and staying on it all the time. So one example is we know that you get a surge of chemical called dopamine, which mm-hmm. underlies reward and feelings of excitement with anticipation. Yeah. So um, if you send out a message and you don't quite know if someone's going to reply or what they're going to reply you get this expectant surge of dopamine. And if it comes, you feel very fulfilled. Similarly with gaming, um, you get a much more dopamine release. That's well known. Whereas if, let's say with social media, let's say every time you sent a message or a post, you knew you were going to get an immediate response. It wouldn't be exciting, would it? It's that slight uncertainty, yeah? The mm-hmm. slight unpredictability. But at the same time, now couple in both cases of gaming and social media, you have this unpredictability, this uncertainty, this excitement. But at the same time, you're safe. You're not being bullied to your face. Mm-hmm. You're not being physically threatened with death. But on the other hand, you're having surrogate versions of that. Yeah. And so um, you can see that what a nice alternative to the real world, one where you know you get much greater chance of getting feedback. You don't necessarily know you will, but you get much greater chance in the real world getting feedback on things. Um, and at the same time, you're safe.
0: You mm-hmm. know, you're physically mm-hmm.
1: not threatened. So of course, you'll do it and spend money doing it
0: yeah it's it's mind blowing that little dopamine hit people get when they you know they they share that picture of themselves
1: exactly. at the beach exactly. or whatever it's it's all yeah, the bleep comes up that you've got a message from someone yep. you know yep. yeah but and that's exactly what happens when people are on you know fruit machines and things like that It's that thrill of you know that um a slight you know, expectation of not knowing what's happening
0: right will you talk a bit about the importance of uh in concept of aspiring to be someone instead of just being anyone, and the relatively new concept of complete escape into being no one.
1: Nobody, yes, yes, there's nobody, anybody, and somebody. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, well, nobody would be um, blowing your mind, losing your mind, and we all want to be that at time to time. We talk about wine, women, and song, drugs, and sex, and rock and roll. And um, what you're doing there is you're conscious, but you're no longer. Um, becoming an individual. You've, after all, blown your mind. You've lost your mind. The very word ecstasy in Greek is to stand outside of yourself. So um, we talk about that, and that, that's that been a notion since Euripides wrote the Bacchae*, which is a play in ancient Greece about these wine-crazed women. And the way we do it is to take substances that actually impair the connections in your brain cells, or you put yourself in an environment um, with very heavy sensory stimulation, um, so wine or song, or sex, all of which are very much um, momentary, strong sensation. We talk about having a sensational time. So when we're doing that, we're nobody. But increasingly, I fear the screen technology is giving us that option of being the passive recipient of strong senses. That's that's nobody. Um, And then we have anybody, when you're being in a collective, when you are a generic person. And in a sense, having spoken about being in the football team and the choir and the family, if that's done to excess, then people do start to have some kind of crisis. I'm thinking mainly of, say, housewives in the 50s and 60s who felt that they were mothers and wives, but they weren't them. Um, You know, they'd lost their identity. They, They weren't individuals. And that led to, of course, the rise of Liberum and Valium and Mother's help us and so on. So um, you can be nobody. On the other hand, it can be consoling being in the mass, being in the mob, not having to think for yourself, as you only have to look at the uh, 1930s Nuremberg rallies to see that. Yeah. Um, and then being a somebody is actually being an individual and being different from somebody else and having a status with all the perils that that involves in terms of being challenged and bullied and criticized. Um, as well as, hopefully, um, you know, having people that respect your individuality and admire it.
0: Will you please summarize how identity brings meaning to our
1: lives? Yeah, um, it's hard to do in a sentence, but I think um, it's important for human beings. And what differentiates us from animals is that we do have this notion of a past, a present, and a future. We aren't just living in the moment, reacting to... Um, Food passing our path or, or an enemy ch- chasing after us, we are actually when we 're in the present, we are informed by the past and the future, um, unless we're doing drug sex and rock and roll uh, we are and it is that it's that past present and future that life story that linearity that I would call an identity so it 's what it means to be human it 's something very special um, we know from um, our fears of for example, the North Korean regime where people are brainwashed or lose their identity or treated as numbers, how that's an anathema to humans to to have that done. And we talk about being dehumanized, yeah, and so on. So part of being human, an adult human, is and that's why we fear Alzheimer's, of course, because... People lose that. It's dismantled. The carefully curated connections are slowly dismantled in Alzheimer's, um, which is why we fear that as well. We talk about losing the mind, literally, dementia. Yeah. Um, so it's part of human. Why it's important is it's because it makes life worth living. It, it, it's important to have your story, your life story, which incidentally um, is why I think we have an affinity with any story. If I said to you now, Jeremy, once upon a time, Yeah. You're immediately hooked. And we know that stories are a better way of transmitting facts than just facts on their own. Human beings are wired to like stories and to respond to stories. And that's because they are reminiscent of our own life stories and therefore our own identity. And so identity is what makes us human. And what makes us human is being individuals and um, having literally our mark on the world and the responses that we get from people and to people, which is what has a meaning in turn echoed in our brain connections that wouldn't be there on a desert island.
0: Well, Susan, I've taken up a lot of your time today. My final question for you is, what are you working on now?
1: Well, as I say, I'm, a, I'm founder of NeuroBio, and I'll repeat, N-E-R-O-B-I-O, Um, and we're developing this disruptive treatment for Alzheimer's, and we're very excited. It's been going now for five years, and In one way, I feel I'm living the dream in that all the work I did in research over the last 40 years, finally it's like a jigsaw puzzle where the pieces are finally coming together and seeming to make sense. So that takes up a lot of my time. We're developing a a blood test and then a a treatment that could be, we hope, delivered before the cognitive symptoms come on. But I still have an interest um, in the mind, if you like, and um, I'm hoping to write a new book. My agent is now exploring this with various publishers. Uh, that would be called Forever Now, which is about the continued present and how the new technologies in the digital age are actually transforming our notions of time and space so that we are very different people. Our uh, consciousness is very different. And therefore, um, I then would like to think about ways in which we can deal with that so that we can really get the best out of the 21st century.
0: It sounds great. I look forward to having you to ba- back on the show and can't wait to read some more of your work. Thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it.
1: It's a pleasure to be on, Jeremy. Have a lovely day. Okay, bye-bye.